Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, we discuss how the church can pray in this divided time. Many will know that in recent weeks, America has been divided by riots that trace to several events, but most specifically the death of the man named George Floyd by the police officer, Derek Chauvin, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Today on the podcast, I'm not going to offer an exhaustive analysis of this particular instance of uh, justice or lack thereof in America, nor am I going to try to offer a comprehensive overview of everything that is occurring in our society and nation. However, I am going to do this. I'm going to give you seven key thoughts, most of them prayers, for this particular time, this particular moment in our nation's life. First, we should be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen today. This is a James 1, 19 to 20 mandate. It, of course, applies to the entire Christian life, and yet I would submit to you now that this is of tremendous importance. This is of great importance in particular in an age when social media can cause events to get inflamed by a factor of 25 beyond what anybody on the ground might imagine. That's not to say that social media does not amplify things that need, in some cases, to be amplified. I think it does. However, we do need to recognize that it is particularly easy in this time to be quick to speak and quick to anger and slow to listen, and thus reverse the biblical paradigm for the wise Christian. According to James's broader thesis in the book of James in the New Testament, to be a single-minded Christian, a Christian who is focused, in other words, on God and his glory and living a wise life for that glory. The double-minded person is unstable, according to James, unstable in all his ways. And part of that instability is not having self-control, and in particular, having control of the tongue. So, the double-minded man is quick to speak, quick to anger, and slow to listen. The Christian must be different. And this is why, in my own instance, I have taken time before commenting on this matter publicly. It's not that anybody is waiting with bated breath on what I would have to say about such things, but it is that these events are often complex, much more complex than they can initially seem to be, and there is a criminal justice system in this country that is set up expressly to handle such matters, and we as Christians want to be very careful about trial by social media. We do not fundamentally support trial by social media. We do not seek the squelching of social media. I myself do not. I use social media. This podcast is being heard by some who have clicked on a link on social media, so we're thankful for that. Nonetheless, we want to recognize as believers that God has set up certain institutions, and to the fullest possible extent, Christians support those God-given institutions that exist for purposes of common grace and, to some degree, to protect the church where that is possible. So, my first my first word for us on this matter is, is that where many around us are not believing and following this biblical mandate, this call to wisdom, we ourselves would, and in particular that we would be disciplined with the tongue, that we would listen, that we would not be angry as much as we can, but that we would allow 
God to speak into our situation, to give us the peace that we all need, that we would not despair, instead that we would be open to reason and calm and gentle where we need to be, and thus display a uniquely Christian witness in a polarized time. Second, I believe that we should pray for justice for George Floyd, and we should mourn with those who mourn. This this case, George Floyd's case, uh, certainly looks by all accounts to be one uh, that is a clear sign of injustice occurring. Now, I am not a judge. I do not want to be a judge, and I do not wish to make my audience, whatever it may be, uh, think that they are judges either. Nonetheless, we want justice where a man, it appears, is unjustly killed. His life is unjustly ended. It is not wrong for believers to want that. In fact, if justice does not occur where someone is wrongfully killed, we of all people will feel our sense of justice flare. Secondly, we want to mourn with those who mourn. A man's family has has lost a loved one, a community member. I don't know much about George Floyd, and uh, I, I don't want to portray him in a way that is inaccurate from any angle, but I know that there are many who are mourning what has happened here, mourning the death of an image bearer, and Christians should not miss that. And whatever whatever take we have on this matter or the matter of police violence as it's construed in different ways in our culture and society today, believers don't want to miss that we are called to mourn with those who mourn in Romans 12. So this isn't, this isn't an option for us. And whatever angle we have on this, however we see this, this occurrence, these events that are in question right now, we want to be a people who are known for being compassionate and mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice. This is no uh, more easy than it is to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. But this is the calling of every believer. Friends, all of us are a work in progress on this count. None of us bats a thousand here. None of us, furthermore, prays for justice uh, for those who are wronged as we should. None of us do. None of us mourns with those who mourn as we should. We are so frequently quick to just miss when someone is in a state of mourning. And we are so quick to get jealous when someone who is rejoicing. Truly, these kinds of cultural flashpoints, tragic as they are, allow us to take stock of our hearts and see how far, how far short of God's benchmarks we all hit. We all land. So this is a time when we pray for justice for George Floyd, and this is a time when we mourn with those who mourn, and we hear in in terms of the church what our brothers and sisters are saying, and we consider what they are saying, and we do not tune them out. Third, we should pray for those in authority over us. This is a New Testament mandate. This is told to us in 1 Timothy 2.5 that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority over us, that we may lead a quiet life. So praying for authorities is not in any way a partisan act, according to Scripture. We know that Peter, uh, echoing Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2, is going to tell us to honor the emperor, the first century church. These two New Testament realities 
tell us something profound about being a Christian. And it's this, we are called to have a posture of as much respect and submission and prayerfulness to authorities as we possibly can. So Christianity is not, first and foremost, a faith that manifests open political rebellion against kings and authority figures, presidents, governors, mayors, police officers, and so on and so forth. Christianity recognizes that God has given authority to earthly rulers. Now, many of us will know that Old and New Testament alike profoundly critique many and varied political and civic authorities. So let's not miss that either. Nonetheless, one of the major ways that we do recognize rightful authority and honor it is to pray for it. Whether or not we agree with the figure in question or the figures in question broadly or not. And this manifests as well in the life of the congregational worship service. A church whose worship service is ordered by the Word of God, regulated by the New Testament, is a church that is going to be, on a regular basis, praying for kings and authority figures and community leaders, not out of any partisan instinct, but out of the direct obedience to a New Testament mandate, asking God that the church would be able to lead a quiet, godly life. So we should pray for President Trump. We should pray for senators and congressmen and congresswomen. We should pray for governors, mayors, city councils, and others who are in authority over us. And we should recognize that we as a people are different than non-Christians on this count who do not pray for leaders according to the New Testament's mandate in faith in Jesus Christ and who in many cases will in no form honor emperors. We are people who honor the office even if we disagree with the one who holds it. Fourth, we should pray for the spread of the truth. We need the truth, facts, to dominate in cultural discourse. We need our public square not to be driven by, first and foremost, our feelings and our opinions, but by what is actually true. Data about police shootings in America, for example, at least in recent years, shows that twice as many so-called white people were killed by police as African-American people. Now, that doesn't dismiss all uh, concerns out of hand that we are hearing in our body politic today regarding police shootings, police violence, these sorts of matters. But we must, as the church, be a people for whom the truth is paramount, or else we will be liable to be taken captive by worldly philosophies, systems, and bodies of thought. Colossians 2.8. That must not happen. The church cannot be taken captive. We should have a broad-based approach to the truth, recognizing that facts are our friends. But we must always also make sure that the truth is what leads our feelings. That's not to say our feelings have no part here. That's not to say that feelings and truth are disconnected, because they're not, necessarily anyway. 
but we have to take pains that in a time when passions are inflamed, frankly, on all sides of the political spectrum, Christians are those who are truth-driven, fact-driven, and who therefore act and speak in public based on the truth. We want the spread of the truth. We don't want the spread of ideology. We don't want the spread of our system of thinking. We don't want man's uh, body of thought to, to dominate in cultural life. We don't, first and foremost as believers, uh, most put our hope in any political party. We want to be a people of the truth, and we want to model that now. Listen, friends, that's not easy. It's easy to jump on social media or record a video or say a message or even preach a sermon that is emotionally driven but is not truth-driven. And we have to take great pains that we don't do that. We're all susceptible here. Again, this closely relates to the first point about being slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Well, a corollary to that James 1 teaching is that we pray for the spread of the truth, understanding that the truth is our friend. The truth is everyone's friend. And if people reject the truth or don't want to hear the truth or pit the truth against a narrative, we need to be very careful about following such people. Because wherever you want to find goodness, you find it on the side of the truth. Fifth, we should pray for law enforcement. Law enforcement, we understand, is part of a Romans 13 mandate. The government does not bear the sword in vain, Paul teaches in Romans 13. So those authorities, not, not just who make laws or policy or order our public life, but who actually defend the populace, those authorities matter tremendously. That's a common grace gift to have authorities who will police a population. Does the American police system perfectly reflect biblical justice? No, it does not. No earthly system or institution perfectly reflects divine ideals. We, we, we have a great capacity to understand how police officers or even departments, let's say, could fall prey to evil, could do wrong things, could take the lives of people unfairly. We understand that from a Genesis 3 standpoint, knowing that evil has been loosed in the world and is to be found all throughout our world. But we also recognize that Romans 13 does not teach us that evil has actually corrupted our world so much that we should not want government. Said more positively, God has given us government and government bears the sword out of common grace. So if sin had so corrupted the systems of the world from a Genesis 3 viewpoint that we couldn't trust government, Paul wouldn't be telling us to, to see that the government bears the sword for our good. But that's exactly what Paul does teach us. It is a good thing that evildoers would fear the law, would fear, in this American case, what we call police officers. That is a good thing. That is not a bad thing. We want that. We are a people who want police in our communities. We are a people, therefore, who want to be broadly supportive, certainly, of police. 
We want to train our children to trust firemen and policemen and these kind of figures. We're not teaching our kids some kind of Pollyanna vision of policemen, for example. We're not teaching them that every policeman is perfect by any stretch, but we do teach our children a, a, a Romans 13 understanding of government and civil authority, legal authority, and defense individuals, defense departments in our society. Pray for law enforcement, friends. It looks to be quite a time for many police officers. Are there bad apples out there? There surely are. But there are also many, many virtuous police officers, just like there are many virtuous soldiers out there who defend American freedom. And we want to be very careful as a church about demeaning those who in some form uh, give God's common grace to us. Pray for law enforcement. Pray for those who serve your community. Seek to encourage them. Where police officers go off the rails and commit wrongs, they should be subject to justice in fullness of measure. Uh, we don't have a different standard for cops. Nonetheless, we should be very careful about narratives that tear cops down as a body, as a group. Sixth, we should pray for an end to mindless and anarchic violence in America, beyond Paris, so on and so forth around the world, London. We have witnessed a wave of terrible, and in natural terms, terrifying anarchy in America and beyond in recent days. And many of us are checking our social media feed or uh, internet headlines or the newspaper or listening to the radio or watching TV, wherever we get news from. And as believers, we are feeling something like despair and anger and fear knock at our door and threaten to break it down and overwhelm us. Well, friends, we are not helpless and we are not hopeless. We should pray for an end to anarchy, this, this current manifestation of it. It's not as if we ourselves could, could exterminate violence in our time or in any time. Only Christ Jesus on the last day when, when he comes back will make all things right. And Jesus surely will do that. We must not lose sight of that. But until Jesus puts the world to rights, we should pray for the end to wickedness. Antifa has unleashed terrible anarchy in our cities. There have been protests of various kinds in this country and elsewhere. Some of them have been peaceful. Uh, peaceful protest um, we can support uh, in the broadest sense. But we need to recognize that many protests have not been peaceful in this country and beyond. Some have, and surely some have not. And where those protests are leading to violence and chaos and zones that are not policed and citizens, therefore, are not safe, Christians, Christians should recognize that is a failure of justice. That is terrible for a nation, a society, a culture, and we should pray for an end to it. And, and we should recognize that there are ideologies in our body politic that are fueling this. We should understand that intersectionality, for example, has an activist component to it that has reared its head 
in numerous occasions on college campuses, for example, in this country. And intersectionality is encouraging young people, for example, to see themselves as justified in raging against authority, against our political leaders, uh, against our current president, so on and so forth. We should recognize that different forms of the intersectional movement argue that reason and morality themselves are evil constructs that keep people down. And friends, Christians should have no part of such a philosophy. Christians should steer very much clear of intersectional ideology, which is no part of Christianity, which is no part of the Christian gospel, which is not merely not the gospel, but is anti-gospel. We have something better to offer the world, friends, and that leads to our last point. We should pray for the church to grasp afresh its unity in Jesus. We have something better to offer the world than worldly systems in a somewhat Christianized form. We have the gospel of divine grace that, that offers sinners total transformation by the blood and the empty tomb of King Jesus. That is what the church is here primarily and fundamentally to preach and to promote and to share. That is our message. That is who we are. We are a gospel people. We are all called to realize our unity in Christ Jesus. It's not that our backgrounds are of no account, but it is that in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 27, there is no Jew or Gentile. And it doesn't mean that Jews and Gentiles don't exist in ethnic form, according to the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatian church in the first century. Paul means that what cuts above everything else in your life, everything else in your background, every proclivity you have, every trait you have, every interest you have is Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you have unity already realized by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of the risen Lord of heaven and earth with every Christian who claims the name of Christ. Unity exists. Salvation has come. Jesus, John 16, 33, has overcome the world. He has not overcome the world by feelings. He has not overcome the world by sitting with his disciples in a circle and strumming a ukulele. He has not overcome the world by uh, marching as an activist. Jesus has overcome the world by dying on a Roman cross for our sins and rising from the grave. And that is where you and I find forgiveness and find true and lasting unity. Friends, there is no true unity in any earthly cause, in any earthly identity, in any earthly proclivity. Let's pray today that Christians of all backgrounds, of all nations, of all peoples, of all ethnicities, would find unity in Christ Jesus. Not would create unity, not would try to work toward unity, but would lay hold of the fact that we have been made one new man, Ephesians 2.15, by the crosswork of Christ Jesus. This will entail that, that we recognize that Satan is trying desperately to divide the church, but we must not let him. This isn't 
a one-sided reality because we must be a people who are salt and light in our world, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, which entails that, of course, we have our eyes open, as we've already talked about in different forms in this little podcast, to injustice, to evil, to wickedness, at whatever level we identify it. Where there is injustice in our world, Christians are against it. Where there is evil in our world, Christians are against it. Where our local community or our state or our nation or our world needs transformation, we should seek it to whatever degree we can, and we should surely pray for it. And we should recognize that racism is a reality today and is going to be a reality in some form, racism or ethnocentrism, you could call it either. These are going to be sinful parts of our world until, once more, Christ Jesus returns to the earth to make all things right and undo fully and finally every evil thing. Christianity opposes racism to the full. Jesus calls people from all over the world to himself, and there is no hierarchy or ranking in the kingdom of Christ. Christians are a people, therefore, who seek justice for those who have been treated unjustly and who preach the gospel to those who desperately need the Savior, Jesus. And Christians are a people who seek to be salt and light in a world of darkness. Friends, there is much more to say than we have covered here. There is much more to pray for than we have touched on. But my hope is that these seven thoughts that I have given you will in some way lift up your eyes to the hills from where your help comes. Your help does not ultimately come from any earthly person or institution or movement or cause. Your hope ultimately comes from the hills, from the God who has made all things, from the God who is reigning and ruling over all things, from the God who is shepherding his church through the wilderness and leading history to its perfect end, its perfect telos. It may seem that we have lost irretrievably things in our culture and society in recent days and weeks, and and who knows if that is true or not. But we also know that our God is a God of dramatic transformations and stunning reversals, and we are playing the long game as Christians. I remember uh, studying Chuck Colson, who would famously tell Christians who felt discouraged by the darkness all around them, seemingly a darkness that was encroaching upon them, that was advancing in the world, do your duty, Colson would say. Stay at your posts. Drawing on his marine background, I've thought about that frequently recently. I've said it to myself, and I'm going to (laughs) resolve to keep saying it to myself. I I would repeat it to you as I wrap up here. In the power of Jesus Christ, do your duty. Do not lose heart. God is reigning. The gospel is advancing. No one can stop Jesus. Satan cannot overcome the church. John 16, 33, Jesus has overcome the world. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. 
And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.